0: and have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening to study your word, to discover the things that you have done in the past, and to come to an understanding of the implication that these things have for our own lives and the way we come to understand you and how you have worked in the past and how you work today and how, we, how you work in us through God the Holy Spirit in terms of our spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you would uh, open the eyes of our understanding that we might clearly perceive your word and see how it applies to our own lives We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 6, continuing our study of this uh, transitional episode here uh, as the church comes together under the leadership of the apostles to solve a problem that has occurred. It's a good uh, passage for uh, seeing how the early church handled problems, how the apostles handled problems. As I pointed out last time, it's a good uh, passage for pointing out a few principles related to Uh, leadership, and it's also important to understand that this passage serves as a transitional passage. This is bringing us to something of a conclusion to the first part of Acts. Remember I said when we began to study Acts back in Acts chapter 1, that the basic outline of Acts is given in the statement that Jesus made when he told the apostles that they needed to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came. Came because and that they should they would were to be witnesses for him in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost part of the earth. That's the basic structure that we see in Acts. The Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, the focal point of the ministry of the apostles in Acts 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Uh, Is in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 7, there is an episode that occurs uh, with Stephen, one of the seven that's chosen in Acts 6, uh, which culminates in his being stoned and a ratcheting up of the hostility and persecution by the Jewish authorities, by the Sanhedrin, against the Christians. This causes them to scatter because they haven't done what Jesus said to do. So God uses this, as he often does, using negative things in our lives and negative things in history in order to put our attention upon him, put our focus upon him, and to move us in the direction uh, that we should be going. And often we respond to negative things with a uh, resistant and resentful attitude, uh, and we don't understand how God may be using that in a number of different ways because God always multitasks in order to move us and move things in a different direction. When, by the time we get to the end of chapter 7, we see a transition that takes place uh, where the emphasis in the next few chapters through chapter 9 is on the expansion of the church primarily through the ministry of of, um, of Philip and Peter in Judea and Samaria. And then beyond that, at that time in chapter 9, we see the salvation of Saul of Tarsus, who becomes known in history as the Apostle Paul. And through the Apostle Paul, the gospel goes out to all the nations. So we see a transition taking place here in chapter 6. We're introduced to the problem that occurs here in the Jerusalem church, the leadership and the resolution of the problem by the, by the apostles. And then we see uh, the introduction as part of the solution of the seven men that they choose in order to facilitate the administration of the distribution of funds to the widows. And among those seven that are chosen are Stephen and Philip, Stephen becomes the focal point of chapter seven, and then uh, Philip becomes the focal point of chapter eight before we get to, uh, Saul. So it's a, a significant understanding of the flow of the, of the story and Luke's telling of what took place. Now last time I finished up looking at the qualifications as we came to verse three. Uh, the qualifications that the apostle set forth for those that would be chosen to uh, administer the financial distribution uh, to the widows. When we come to this next to this verse, the focal point of their qualification is that they are to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, a significant phrase. So this one of the key elements we're going to look at tonight is the issue of spiritual growth, and spiritual maturity. In Acts 6-1, we're told that there was a problem, that a complaint, a legitimate complaint arose from the part of the Hellenistic widows. These are widows that were born outside and and had probably lived most of their lives outside of Judea, outside of Galilee, and had probably come back to uh, Jerusalem in their later years. This apparently was a Common practice uh, of widows in the uh, diaspora is when their husbands died, then many moved back to Jerusalem. So there was a large population of, of widows in Jerusalem, and many of these had trusted in Jesus as Messiah. As part of the new church, the new church took on the responsibilities of taking care of the widows just as uh, that had been mandated in a previous dispensation when the uh, under the <coughs> administration of the Torah, the administration of the Mosaic Law, the widows were to be taken care of. So they're taking care of their own. They're not expecting the Romans. They're not expecting the Sanhedrin. They're not expecting some other government authority to do it because they recognize the foundational principle of personal responsibility. It's not the government's responsibility to provide health care for anyone. That's a clear violation. Um, There are many people who think they believe in personal responsibility, but you can't believe consistently in personal responsibility. And government-sponsored health care at the same time. It's one or the other because they are mutually contradictory. People are responsible for their own lives, and what happens to their own lives And we need to allow people to reap whatever consequences of bad decisions that they make. Uh, We don't like to do that, and we have compassion and understand that. But there also needs to be a recognition that it is not the government's job. Uh, Once the government gets into more and more things, then every time the government takes over something, we lose individual freedom and individual responsibility. It's going to be very interesting to see how this uh, Supreme Court case plays out but the pattern that we saw under the mosaic law the pattern that we see continuing in christianity is that it is the individuals who are responsible for taking care of those less fortunate within the community it is not a resp- ever seen as the responsibility of the of the state the responsibility of the government now because uh, people are often are flawed because people are sinners. People make mistakes. Systems break down. There's no perfect government. There's no perfect system. And as the church has grown, the system broke down. And the distribution of financial aid to the widows uh, was not, had clear problems and an inequity was seen and the apostles didn't question that. And so they thought through. Uh, we're not told all of this. It's uh, surmised from the Results that we see, that we're told about, that they thought through the issue and came up with a plan, and then they summoned the congregation, the multitude of the disciples together, and they made the statement, it's not desirable that we should leave the Word of God. What they meant by that was teaching the Word of God. We should not leave, let aside our responsibility in studying and teaching the Word of God and serve tables. Now, they're not setting this up as things that are mutually contradictory. What they're saying is that there is a role responsibility and that their job is primarily uh, the, going to be the administration of the word of God and prayer, teaching the word and prayer, uh, and rather than serving tables. And uh, <clears throat> what they mean by serving tables is that this was ha- where the, um, the, they would sit, those who administered the distribution of funds of alms to the widows, They would sit at the tables, and so these were, as it were, banking tables. These were the tellers that were sitting there handling the distribution of the finances. And the emphasis on the word there is on service and that this is part of leadership. Leadership serves people, not the other way around. It is not – I always think it's a good idea if we limited people in public office to ten years and no more – so that they would learn what it means that they're there not to establish a career for themselves, but they're there to serve the people, not the interests of whomever. So there, uh, in Acts six three, then we read the qualifications. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit. And wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, what's important to see here, as I pointed out last time, is that they call the congregation together and they ask the congregation to basically form a nominating committee. Now, they didn't call it something like that, but they are in some way going to evaluate those that they know. Uh, and, and make recommendations to the apostles as to whom they think are qualified. This means they have to analyze and evaluate the spiritual maturity of people within the congregation. Now, every now and then, you hear people misquote and misapply because they misunderstand what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Judge not that you be not judged. The word that Jesus used there, based on the Greek word krino, has to do with a broad, has a broad range of meanings. It can mean, on the one hand, making an intelligent, objective evaluation of someone. For example, if you are uh, an employer and you need to hire someone, then you are going to crino them. You are going to judge them. You are going to evaluate them. You're going to interview a number of different people. You're going to look at their resumes, and you're going to get as much information as you can so that you can select the right person for the job. The word crino would be used for that in the same way that it would be used to express uh, someone who was just making harsh, malignant, uh, nasty, judgmental comments about someone, possibly even leading into gossip or slander. The same word would be used. So it had a broad range of meaning, and the context would tell you what the um, speaker or the writer was talking about. And so when Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, he's talking about uh, judging in the negative sense, being harshly critical, Uh, negatively judgmental on the borderline of of slander and uh, harshly criticizing someone when you have no business to do that or trying to determine whether or not someone's behavior was uh, valuable before God on the basis of of your own opinion as opposed to God's. And so this is what Jesus was talking about. He's not talking about making an objective evaluation of someone on the basis of criteria for service. Otherwise, the New Testament and the Old Testament, for that matter, would be filled with contradictions because there are many times when leadership is expected to critically, and by that I mean in an objective, thoughtful manner, evaluate people for specific tasks. In First Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul set, sets forth, as well as in Titus chapter 1, uh, the Apostle Paul sets forth certain qualifications or characteristics that should be found in a pastor or in deacons. And so in order for uh, to select men who have those qualifications, and in biblical Christianity, leadership is always limited to male leaders, and especially in areas of teaching the word. Uh, this is uh, for a number of reasons. It doesn't mean that uh, God it, or, or that position is uh, anti-women, only if you distort and change uh, what you mean by everything. There are roles for women. There are roles for men. And men are have distinct roles from women. And women have certain privileges. Men have certain privileges, and responsibilities within the body of Christ. And it doesn't mean one is better or worse than the other. It just means God has determined, for whatever reason, uh, a demarcation of responsibilities between, between the sexes. So in Acts 6.3, to choose seven men, not seven women, but seven men of good reputation, now, this word that's translated reputation is the word that I have here on the screen um, there on the left. Martir, uh, martireo, which is a present passive participle, present passive participle, which means to bear witness. It's the typical word for giving someone who gives testimony in a courtroom. The word... uh the root word from the noun uh, is the word that w- where we get our English word martyr because they have given a testimony of their life to the point where they gave up their life. That's how it came into into usage. But its root meaning is to refer to someone who gives a witness or someone who r- recommends someone or testifies or gives testimony about something. So these are seven men who have a good testimony from other people. So within the sphere of public life, they are considered to be upright men. They have a good reputation, not only among those who are uh, in the church, but of those who are outside the church. They have a good reputation. That reputation is is then qualified by the next phrase. I think the next phrase is appositional. An appositional phrase means that it is saying the previous thing in a slightly different and perhaps more precise way for clarification. Uh, they, uh, the apostles are clarifying what they mean by uh, a good testimony. This is what, what it comes from. It comes from the source of the Holy Spirit, not the source of the individual. He's not simply a good moral person. There is a spiritual vitality to him. He has grown uh, spiritually. There is a spiritual maturity there. And he is said to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Now, what's important is if we look at this grammatically, the, the two nouns... Holy Spirit and wisdom are equally objects of the adjective. They are both in the genitive case in the uh, Greek, which is important to understand. Uh, and the genitive is many times, generally speaking, it's a, it's a case of description. You talk about someone being the, the, um, uh, you know, the, the son of his father. But the word of his father is describing something about the noun son. It's saying who he's related to. Uh, so in a broad sense, all genitives are uh, are, uh, are descriptive. All of them are adjectives. But the, you can break the genitive down, and grammarians break it down into, depending on who you're reading, Twenty to 25 different uh, qualifications. Now, one of the things that's interesting about a genitive is it is often used with uh, some verb or noun related to content. Now, of course, the noun pleres is related to the verb plerao, which we're familiar with from That's the word that's used, as we'll see in Ephesians 5.18, that means to be f- f- filled with the Holy Spirit. But what follows, as we'll see when we get there, what follows the verb in Ephesians 5.18 is not a genitive construction, but an instrumental or dative construction. And that changes the concept completely. Uh, because the instrumental or dative uh, grammar uh, syntax indicates the means by which something is filled, not the content with which it is filled. And so here you have this phrase, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Now, it was typical of a generation or two before us to have taught that uh, the principle that if you look at the book of Acts, that there were many different fillings of the Spirit, People like C.I. Schofield, Lewis Ferry Chafer, many, many others, many of their students taught this. That failed to take into account that there are different words used for the being full of the Spirit, in, uh, or being full of the Spirit, uh, different verbs, verbs can play me rather than play rao, and in these cases the noun play-race instead of the verb, and that these are not talking about the same thing that Ephesians 5.18 is talking about. And it's more than just looking at the individual parts of the phrase here, looking at the fact that the word full is pleres, and that's the noun form of plerao, and concluding, well, therefore, that is the same thing. That is an amateurish error of, of a sophomoric Greek understanding. It's easy to see why they get that way, but it's wrong. Uh, a phrase, just like some words, are more than the sum of the parts. You take certain words that are compound words, you put two words together, and the compound word is used of something different than the uh, just the individual words. The same thing is true of a phrase, because once you look at how a word is used in a phrase, it often can become an idiomatic statement that has a non-literal meaning. So while the word full of something would literally mean, uh, for you might speak of a bucket being full of water, when you're talking about uh, the characteristics of something, now it's moving into a non-literal or more of a metaphorical sense where the whole phrase is really being descriptive it's adjectival it's saying that so such and such is characterized by this this is the, this is uh, an adjective that describes them it's not saying that they're literally full to the brim with something but that something is so typical of them that it this is used this way in an idiom to describe what they are and in that sense Uh, we see that this is a description of spiritual maturity. It's not a description of the process of being filled by means of the Spirit, but it is uh, used to depict and describe the end result of having been filled uh, consistently by means of the Spirit. We see that because uh, you'll see this, And the order of the words related to the Holy Spirit shift around a couple of different times here in this uh, chapter. Full of the Holy Spirit, full means to mean the same thing as full of wisdom. And see, your wisdom is a process growth that takes place over time as one takes in the word of God and assimilates it into their thinking and applies it to every area of a life, every area of life. So somebody is not, it's not an absolute concept. You're either, uh, for example, when we talk about the, being filled by the Spirit, we talk about you're either being filled or you're not being filled by means of the Spirit. You're either in fellowship or out of fellowship. You're either walking by the Spirit or not walking by the Spirit. But you're, it, 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 wisdom is a progressive aspect as a result of spiritual growth so you don't say well you're you're one minute you're wise and the next second you're out of fellowship you're foolish you confess your sins now you're wise wise is not a term you would apply to an immature believer he can be walking by the spirit but he hasn't had enough time of spiritual growth to be considered wise yet so, by looking at the the other characteristics that are the objects of the noun, we come to understand that this is has to be a descriptive phrase related to spiritual maturity, and also because of the task that they're being appointed to they 're going to be handling money so th- this is related to uh, an aspect of their personal integrity in being able to uh, be trusted with uh, with with the money. Uh, interesting uh, thing ran across my desk in a conversation the other day that in uh, last year, last September, when we had the wildfires in uh, uh, over in uh, Bastrop, that there were so many people who were destitute, lost everything, people had left their homes and Uh, Whether they lost their homes in a fire or not, they were left without money. That before the federal government came in, they uh, a huge amount of money was being uh, was pouring into the Bastrop community to help the help out those who were in financial distress. And the community leaders turned to the pastors of the churches in Bastrop because they knew they could be trusted. They had the integrity to honestly and and correctly distribute the money. In fact, when the feds came in, they, uh, as I understand it, they really wanted to leave it that way because th- th- there was a local trust and knowledge in those leaders, in the church leaders and in the church pastors. And so that's a sort of a modern example of what is seen here is that they needed men of integrity And not, and spiritual integrity, men who were spiritually mature, uh, and then they would be qualified to be appointed, uh, over this, over this business. Now this phrase related to, uh, the, the noun pleres followed by a genitive phrase is used a number of different places in scripture. So we don't just have this one example to look at. What we do in Bible study is you look to see how a word is used and a phrase is used in a number of different contexts. It's not just the word, but how is this word used when it's followed by a genitive noun or or hopefully two genitive nouns that are in in the same kind of construction that we have in Acts chapter 6. We have a similar example in Acts 9 at Joppa. Joppa was a seaport just uh, today. It's within the city limits of Tel Aviv, and it is right on the uh, seaport there. Paul lived there for a while. I mean, excuse me, Peter lived there for a while, but this was where he was living at the home of Simon the Tanner. You can go to the home of Simon the Tanner today. If you're in Tel Aviv, it's probably not his home, but they do have a place right on the right on the waterfront there, Uh, we're told that at Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, uh, which is translated uh, Dorcas. Uh, This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds. Now, here's an interesting thing. If, If full of the Spirit means that, the, the same idea you have in Ephesians 5.18 that you're either in fellowship or out of fellowship. You're either full of the Spirit or you're not fill, filled with the Spirit or not filled with the Spirit. Full of the Spirit or not full of the Spirit. It's talking about the same thing. Then full of charitable deeds. You're either full of them or the next minute you're not full of them. Then you're back in fellowship and the next minute you're full of them. Does it, it, That doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit this kind of a context. So this phraseology of being full of something and something is just a, a way of saying that this person's life is characterized so much by these attributes, the attributes of good works, helping those around her and charitable deeds or gracious deeds to uh, the people she, that was what she was known for so she did this so much. The second verse uh, is <coughs> acts 1124 that states uh he's a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith see it's the an uh, sort of an opposite order than you have in Acts chapter six. actually, when we look at um, uh, verse five of acts six five uh, the whole multitude chose Stephen a man full of faith and the holy Spirit three times this two two more one, the first mention is the qualification verse three, then twice more. The phrase is used to refer to, to to Stephen, so he was the obvious choice uh, because of his maturity. But here in Acts eleven twenty four, you have the phrase uh, "full of the Holy Spirit and faith." Just uh, excuse me, I misspoke a minute ago. Just the reverse of what you have in um, uh, in Acts six five, where it's faith first and then the Holy Spirit. Some some um, some writers, some theologians, have tried to make an issue out of the order, and they just botch it terribly because they're trying to make one of these terms a qualification of the other, sort of saying "full of the Holy Spirit who produces faith," and that just doesn't work. That both are—you have two nouns that are the objects of this—I mean, two two genitive nouns that are objects of this one one other noun full of. And so they have to be treated as the same way. It's like saying that um, that you <coughs> looked at, um, uh, at someone and they were dressed and they were wearing white and blue. They're wearing two different colors and you're treating each of them as equal objects. Uh, and you're not saying that the blue is kind of white or the white was kind of a bl- whitish blue. Uh, you don't blend them like that. It's just two different equal objects of the noun. So here the description again is he's full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. His life is characterized because he walks by the Spirit so consistently. His life is characterized at by, by his relation with the Holy Spirit and his consistent faith and trust in God. Acts 13, 10. Now, this refers uh, to the opposite. This is the evil side. Now, I think it's always interesting in a word study if you can uh, flip it and find an example of the opposite uh, being spoken of. And in Acts 13, we have the example, I believe, of of, uh, Simon. Of elements, the sorcerer rather. Elements, the sorcerer in verse eight. Elements, the sorcerer for his name is translated. Withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now again, that's a different word. That's pimplamy, and it's followed by a genitive, so it shouldn't be translated filled with the Spirit. It should be translated filled of the Spirit. It's talking about his the content, not means. Uh, full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently at in him and said, uh, Oh full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil. So, again, deceit and fraud were not something that one second he's fully deceitful and fraudulent, the next minute he's not. It's describing the fact that he, his life is characterized by de- deceptive practices and fraudulent activity. So again we see this phrase as a character description of someone who is uh most of his life is characterized by by something. In Acts nineteen twenty eight we have a, a similar usage but only one object referring to the crowd uh that is is rioting against Paul. Uh, the the silversmiths have lost money. Their unions all upset because Paul's come in and preached the gospel, and people have turned away from idols, uh, the little silver idols they made of Diana of the Ephesians, and so the 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 union uh, the unions got everybody all riled up and upset, and uh, to attack the apostle Paul, and so their mental state is described as they were full of wrath. So they were they, at that point. They were. It's a description of their uh, of their anger. Now, if we go back to our passage in Acts chapter six, what we see here is a statement in verse uh, verse three to seek out seven men of good reputation. That is full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. They're characterized by their walk, their consistent walk with the Holy Spirit, and that has produced wisdom in their life, a skillful application of the word in their life so that they can be appointed over the business. Verse 5, we read that that the first person that came to mind was Stephen, who's described as a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. So he's he's full of the Holy Spirit, not that he is in fellowship all the time, but that he has been in fellowship, he has walked by the Spirit so that his life has a characteristic of spirituality, that is, of spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. And then we look down further to verse 8. We have another statement about Stephen. Stephen, full of faith and power. Now there's a new element added, full of faith and power. Power wasn't something that came or went, whether he was in fellowship or out of fellowship. It has now, because he is in the position he's in, this is something that now characterizes his, his Christian life. Now this is quite a bit different, use of this phraseology in terms of a description of maturity from what we have in Ephesians in Ephesians 5.18, you have a contrastive statement. In verse 18, we have the phrase, do not be drunk with wine. And wine is in the dative case, indicating a, an instrument or a means to an end, uh, in which is dissipation. But Paul says, be filled, and now he uses the phrase, in Numity in is the Greek preposition that can be translated with or by or in some cases even in I in the English. Uh, And it usually indicates uh, instrumentality, something by which something is done. So we are to be filled by the Holy Spirit or by means of the Holy Spirit. He's the instrument of the filling, not the content of the filling. When we get in fellowship, one minute we're not empty, and the next minute you're up, full up to here with the Holy Spirit. And then you get out of fellowship, and it's all gone, and you're constantly up and down. That's You're not getting more of the Holy Spirit. When we walk more consistently by the Spirit and we reach spiritual maturity, then that phrase, full of the Spirit and wisdom, full of the Spirit and faith, that would apply. But here Paul is talking about the means to an end. And we understand that in verse 18, and we have to contrast this to an erroneous, a common erroneous analysis of this passage. And it's very understandable. What happens when a person drinks too much of an alcoholic beverage is that they begin to lose their inhibitions and they begin to act uh, different than they would otherwise. And so often it's easy to understand uh, drunkenness as an aspect of control. But what happens when a person is under the influence? We say they are no longer volitionally responsible. Now, there may be volitionally responsible for getting under the influence, but once you're really inebriated, your volition is controlled by by the fact that you're inebriated, by the alcohol. This isn't talking about control. This is talking about influence, and there's a difference. And it's very important to understand that because often when I read through various commentaries and theologians, they use the word control and they and they don't really mean that that if if Stephen were controlled by the Holy Spirit then that would mean that his volition would be completely controlled or overridden by the Holy Spirit so what would cause him to be to, to the Holy Spirit to quit overriding his volition Once the Holy Spirit is writing your volition, and this was a problem that came out of the 19th century as uh, people were trying to articulate this aspect and the role of the Holy Spirit in the life, as they would say it's control. And so uh, that led to one of the little catchphrases in what became known as the Keswick Movement or the Victorious Life Movement. We studied a lot of these movements, and you can go back and read. I think Jim Myers did a great paper on this last year, and several others did as well. Uh, David Rosen, I think, did a great presentation at the Chafer Conference last year on this. And A little catchphrase that come, came out was, let go and let God. And and while there is a certain truth in that phrase that we need to quit trying to c- control things and let God handle si- certain situations. That's not how that phrase was used. It was that I need to just disengage my volition, and then God's going to step into the pilot seat, and he's going to uh, fly fly the airplane of my life. Uh, and that's that would be the, uh, the kind of image they would use, or a, or a car. You're going to get out of the driver's seat and go sit in the passenger seat and let God sit in the driver's seat. And God's going to make all the decisions. And people got very frustrated trying to live the Christian life on that basis because you still have to make decisions. I still have to make decisions. We still get into circumstances where we have to decide, am I going to apply God's word to this circumstance or not? God's not going to make that decision for me. That's mysticism. That's mysticism. That's this idea that I'm going to just give up and let God take over. No, you can't do that because God doesn't step into the driver's seat. He does, he's not going to subvert our volition. It goes back to that first divine institution of human responsibility again. God is not going to subvert his own uh, institution. Now, this idea of being drunk with wine was uh, significant in Ephesus, because in Ephesus, there were some competing religions. One of them was the one I mentioned a minute ago with uh, worshiping Artemis of the Ephesians, who was also called the many-breasted goddess because of uh, she was the goddess of fertility. And you look at the statues and the pictures of, of her uh, from antiquity, and, and that's how they depicted her. She had 20 or 30 breasts. And she is the... Uh, goddess of fecundity she is the goddess of prosperity and so that was one of the major religions in Ephesus but another major religion that came out of uh, that area of Asia Minor uh, was the worship of of Dionysius and Dionysius came out of that of of Turkey originally that area of ancient Turkey Asia Minor and Dionysius otherwise known as Bacchus was the God of wine. And the way that they would worship the God of wine was to become drunk. And how do you become close? How do you enter into fellowship with the God so that the God would enter into you and speak through you? You would get drunk and they would go up into various uh, worship centers up in the uh, hills around there where there were sacred groves of trees, and the priestesses were called menads, and they would, uh, get all worked up in dancing and praise dancing and these kinds of things and drinking wine until, and they would just get, and, and the energy would just increase and the intensity would increase until, uh, they would just almost pass out, and hopefully the, they would enter into this ecstatic state. Where the god would enter through them and then they would speak in gibberish. Same kind of thing happened with the, um, uh, over in Greece with the, um, um, oh, the worship of the, uh, oh, I forgot the name now, Um, the fortune teller, the Pythian goddess at Delphi with the Oracle of Delphi. The Oracle of Delphi would inhale these fumes that came out of the earth, and then she would uh, go into kind of an altered state of consciousness, and then she would speak in tongues. The God would speak through her, uh, the Python God. So she'd usually wrapped up with the snake. So this um, this was how they became close to God, was through wine. Wine was the means of becoming spiritual, in Dionysian worship. And so what Paul is saying here is that that don't be drunk with wine. Wine's not the key to being close to God. Be filled by means of the Spirit instead. That is how you become close to God. And the results that we find in Ephesians 5:18 that follow that command are very important to, to notice. We've gone through this many times. I'm sure it's familiar to you, but in Ephesians 5:19, we read that one of the results of being filled by means of the spirit is speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Uh, so singing, worship, uh, true biblically based worship of singing psalms and hymns to God. Uh, the second characteristic is gratitude, giving thanks. Always for all things to God the Father, and then third, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now when you turn over just a few pages to Colossians, a place you're familiar with from our study on Sunday mornings, in Colossians three sixteen, we have a different command than what Paul has in Ephesians five eighteen. Ephesians five eighteen it's be filled with the Spirit, and then you have a list of results. In in Colossians 3.16, the command is to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And what's the result? Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Whatever you do in word, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then talking about different roles and the role of submission to authority. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your Wives. Uh, children obey your parents in all things, fathers do not provoke your children uh, lest they become discouraged, etc. So the results that you find in Ephesians five, nineteen and following are the identical results that you find in Colossians three, sixteen and following. You, you have two different commands. One command is to be filled by means of the Spirit. That's talking about the means the other command is to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's content. And so the filling by means of the Spirit isn't just a passive status of being in fellowship. It is when God the Holy Spirit, is we're in, because we're in fellowship with God, God the Holy Spirit is able to fill our soul and thinking with the word of God which is the dynamic going on when we are walking by the Spirit, and when we spend maximum amount of time walking by the Spirit, the end result is that we become spiritually mature, or we can be described as being full of the Spirit and full of faith. So this helps us to understand what it means to be filled by the Spirit a little more clearly. And all of these different terms, whether you talk about John John 13, abide in Christ, that is remaining in fellowship. Or you have other passages that talk about walking in the light. That's talking about a characteristic of life. Walking is a metaphor for life. It involves the fact that we're to live moment by moment, day by day. But we walk in the light, that is in the light of God's word, in fellowship. Uh, or if we sin, then we're walking in darkness. We are to um, walk by means of the Holy Spirit. And the result is that the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives, which is character transformation. That's why uh, that's what has happened with with uh, Philip and Stephen and and the others. So this command to be that they be full of the spirit and full of wisdom is A statement that they are to be spiritually mature so that they have a reputation among those not only in the church but outside of the church as being spiritually mature. And men, they can trust that they can be appointed over this business. And in contrast, what the apostles say is, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and ministry of the word. And the word there for uh, give ourselves continually is the Greek word proskartereo, which is a future we will um, uh, think some translations translate it as a subjunctive that we might. That's not, uh, they're, they're making a, a statement of reality that we will uh, devote ourselves uh, continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. The word means, to persist in something, to persevere in something, to be constant in something, to make that their number one priority. This is their job description. So this is the first time we recognize that there needs to be a division of labor and division of responsibility in terms of the leadership of the the church. There's one group whose primary responsibility is to be in the word, to study the word, to teach the word, and to be in prayer. You can't separate the two. To be in prayer and study, to be in study and prayer. Uh, it's not study and teach, study and teach, study and teach. It's prayer, study and teach, pray, study and teach, pray, study and teach. That's the threefold mandate for the uh, for the pastor to pray, study and teach. He is to focus on on feeding, providing the spiritual nourishment uh, for the congregation. Uh, that's his primary mission. Now, is that all he does? No. Uh, as we'll see in this, this description, uh, there's a responsibility given to these seven men for the administration and distribution of the funds to help the widows. But the first thing we, we never see Stephen do that. What's the first thing we see Stephen do? He's out preaching the gospel. So wait a minute. Was he wrong? No. See when we talk about the fact that a pastor's primary job is to pray, study and teach, that doesn't mean that he doesn't have other responsibilities. Because as a person living in li- living life, he has many different responsibilities. A pastor may be a husband, he may be a parent, he may be Uh, involved in other aspects of life because of where he lives or what he does. There are many pastors who also uh, do other things on the side, which they need to in order to raise money to support their families. Uh, We're also citizens in the United States. And as citizens, we have responsibilities like every other citizen to be involved in our community. One of the interesting things that I've learned the past couple of years, I, I never heard the term before, but within Judaism, there is a, a phrase that and a concept that is drilled into uh, every young Jewish person. And that's a phrase, tikkun olam. And it means loosely translated, or how I've heard it translated, is to repair the world. And I kept thinking, what does that come from? What does that come from? It comes out of the Abrahamic Covenant because in Genesis chapter 12 when God calls out Abraham he says you it's a command you're to be a, you are to be a blessing to the whole world that's the root of that command is to recognize that that their responsibility before God was to be a blessing to their neighbors and to those around them that's why uh, they're to love their neighbor as themselves that's part of that and incidentally even though Jesus ratchets ratchets up that command in John 13, by saying we're to love one another as Christ loved the church, Leviticus is still quoted many times in the New Testament to the church-age believer that we're to love our neighbor as ourself. We don't just become insulated and isolated from the culture around us. And um, we don't just sit back and say, well, I'm in the church now, I'm in the body of Christ, I don't like all those other people who aren't Christians. I'm just going to stay in my own little tight, insulated community and not function in terms of the broader community. That's how we are to be engaged. We, too, have that responsibility to do everything, every area of our responsibility uh, to the glory of God. And that means our citizenship uh, that means uh, whatever other functions related to being a father or mother or parent, a grandparent, a, uh, uh, whatever your job or career might be, you have those responsibilities as well. But, the, but in, what we're talking about here is within the structure of the church, the primary ministry was the word and prayer. Now, later on, we're going to learn that, that that gets refined by the Apostle Paul in the pastoral epistles. And Paul tells Timothy, who's a pastor, who has the gift of pastor-teacher and not the gift of evangelist, that's never indicated, that he's to also do the work of an evangelist. He's to proclaim the gospel. So a pastor is not saying, oh, I just have the gift of pastor-teacher, I have to pastor. Uh, He has other, he functions within the body of Christ in in, uh, every other area. So, uh, but this is talking about their primary focal point. This is their primary job, job description. So when you talk about a pastor, the pastor's job is not to represent the church uh, down at City Hall every time there's some sort of problem in the community. Now, that doesn't mean he, there aren't going to be occasions when that might not be something he has to do. But that's not his, that's not his primary job. And if he does it, it's so that he can get rid of whatever this problem is and get back to doing the main thing he's supposed to be doing, which is, uh, praying, studying, and teaching. But there are all kinds of distractions that come into our lives. And sometimes we have to go deal with the distraction so that it quits being a distraction. And get back, so we can get back to our primary responsibility. That's sort of what was going on here. They had a distraction and they had to deal with it so that they could get back to doing what they were supposed to be doing. As I pointed out earlier, this word, praskardarao, is also used in Colossians 4 2 for prayer. It's used uh, continually, continue earnestly. That's how it's translated there. It just has this I word, be devoted, make it a priority to pray, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Now, after they said this, there's a response in Acts 6, verse 5, the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen. Now, this is really important for understanding things that go on later on in, in the church. This is a basis later for congregational involvement in the selection process uh, of church church leaders. it's not just something imposed from the top down it goes but has its roots in the Old Testament that when when um, uh, Moses received the advice from Jethro to delegate responsibilities to uh, divide up the uh, tribes of Israel into different uh groups and uh, uh stages of organization that he asked the people to choose leaders from among themselves. So there's a responsibility there that, that ultimately goes back to that first divine institution of individual responsibility, but individuals exercising their responsibility in democracy can choose bad leaders who put evil policies in place. This is exactly what happened when our previous president insisted on having democratic elections in the Palestinian Authority and they elected Hamas. And now we have this this whole balagan going on over in Israel between uh, with Hamas controlling Gaza and Fatah controlling the, uh, the West Bank. So you, d- democracy doesn't. Always work, and the idea that we should be exporting democracy is just again another another failure. Uh, so they, but there is an emphasis on individual responsibility. They they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Again, he's spiritually mature, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, Nicholas, uh, who is a proselyte from Antioch. That means among the seven, he's the only gentile but he became a proselyte he became or entered into uh, the jewish community via uh, conversion and becoming circumcised now the other thing that's interesting is all of these names are greek names now there are those who say they weren't all hellenistic greeks because it was common among jews uh hebrews jews living in the land to have greek names but um The fact that they're having to deal with a problem in the Hellenistic community and the fact that at least one of them is a Gentile or Greek proselyte uh, to Judaism would suggest that they may have chosen uh, mostly, if not all, Hellenistic Jews uh, in order to um, administer to the Hellenistic widows. That would have been very wise. You've got these uh, Hellenistic widows uh, from outside of Israel. They feel like they've been slighted and overlooked and mishandled. And so you're going to appoint primarily Greek uh, background Jews who are taking care of them. And so that would immediately uh, let them think that they're being listened to. There's a responsive leadership and they're putting someone in a position of responsibility that they can trust. So what they then do is they set them before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Now, this is something we normally do uh, when uh, when we have an ordination. And a lot of times people say, well, why do you do that? Well, it has its root in the Old Testament, that the idea of laying hands on someone uh, we, we see it in sacrifices. Someone would bring a sacrifice in to the temple and they would lay their hands on it. And it's an idea of a transference of sin from the individual to the animal. It's an uh, indication of identification and a an, an, an sign of unity between the one putting his hands on someone else and, or something else and uh, the other person or, or, or animal. In Numbers twenty-seven, twenty-two, 22 uh, when Moses chose uh, Joshua, Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and he took Joshua and set him before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation, and he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him, as just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses. It's, it's an identification of his, Moses' position of authority with Joshua's position of authority. So what is going on here with the laying on of hands is that the apostles are saying, they share in our authority. They are our representatives, and they share in our authority. And this is why you will see that in, in, in a minute that second, in 1 uh, Corinthians, rather, um, signs and wonders were a sign of the apostles. The only other people who perform signs and wonders in the New Testament are Philip and Stephen. But Philip and Stephen are part of this unique body that is considered an apostolic extension in Acts chapter 6. What's the result? The word of God spread. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to faith. Now, when Stephen irritates the Sanhedrin by the end of the chapter, the Sanhedrin is made up mostly of Sadducees but most of the priests came out of the Sadducee party. And they're going to bring in a lot of false witnesses to bring accusations against Stephen. But this statement would not be true if Stephen were guilty of these accusations. The priests would not have been won over uh, to Christianity if Stephen had been the corrupt uh, blasphemer that he was charged with. We learn a lot of priests... These are probably those who, uh, in some sense, part of that community that the, the epistle to the Hebrews is uh, going to later be, be written to. In Acts 6, 8, and I'm just going to skip through this, finish up the chapter briefly. Stephen was full of faith and power, and he did what? Wonders and signs among the people. That shows now his his selection, his position uh, 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 with the apostles and his as an extension of apostolic authority is validated by God the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 12.12 says that the signs of an apostle were uh, signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And so these are evident. But as that happens, opposition arose. Just because you're doing the right thing doesn't mean that people are not going to oppose you. In fact, I can almost guarantee that if you're doing the right thing, people will oppose you. And they received opposition from a synagogue, and some have suggested there were as many as 1,500 different synagogues in in Jerusalem at this time. Uh, the synagogue of the freedmen, these would have been uh, Hellenistic Jews, or Jews from outside of Israel who had been slaves and had been freed, and they've come back to Israel or to Judea. And they some of these were antagonistic to Stephen. They're arguing with him, and... Uh, Stephen is uh, getting the best of them and so they do not like uh, what he is saying in verse 10 we read they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke then they secretly so now we have a conspiracy they induced men lured him to be false witnesses violating the 10th commandment they secretly induced men to say we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God and they stirred up the people the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council, that is, the Sanhedrin. And then verse 13, they set up false witnesses. Now, in doing this, they have violated several aspects of the law, according to the Mishnah. They stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes, they brought him to the council, and they also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Now, then Stephen is going to speak in the next chapter. So next time we'll come back and look at what Stephen says. This is one of the most remarkable chapters in Scripture as he gives a summary of, of the Old Testament. So we'll get into that next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to get into an understanding of the dynamics of the early church and especially the role of God the Holy Spirit, how we walk by the Spirit as we are filled by means of the Spirit, and as we walk by the Spirit, then the Holy Spirit produces fruit and maturity in our lives. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand Uh, these things, and that God, the Holy Spirit, would challenge us to apply these things in our life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.